The podcast of Matrix is a system, listener. One that's based on experience, skill sets, and you. There are other hosts, but what I'm telling you is that when it's time to dodge the billing bullets for hosting your entire podcast library online, you won't need to. Plug into the real world podcast hosting solution now at podcastermatrix.com. That's podcastermatrix.com. When you hear the words Friday the 13th, what do you think of? While most will recollect a certain impossible to be killed masked individual bearing sharp weapons of all kinds, there's another Friday the 13th that deserves attention. In 1987, Friday the 13th, the series, created a rich tapestry of completely original storytelling. Based on a series of curious, devilishly enchanted objects that must be recovered and returned to the vault to prevent truly dark fates from befalling their owners. This is the detailed revisit and review of the adventures of their reacquisition, episode by episode. You won't find any hockey masks here. This is the Curious Goods Podcast from Two Guys Talking Horror. Friday the 13th, the series, isn't just the focal point for cursed antiques, 80s haircuts, and slow jams with the devil. It's also the nexus for the meeting of minds of all kinds. Tonight, we'll connect with Elise Wax, author of Curious Goods, Behind the Scenes of Friday the 13th, the series, who is connecting with us live via Two Guys Talking Podcast Network teleconference suite. We've got stories of Friday the 13th, the series, Friday the 13th series fans, pop culture conversations galore, and more today because it's time for another educational and sometimes horrifying interview for you via the Curious Goods podcast. A retelling, a revisit, and an always educational retell of each and every episode of Friday the 13th, the series. Elise, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Some quick housekeeping. Charger forward. For those of you that have been listening to our podcast for a while, I've been talking about starting a program that focuses on the education via your automobile and life. Well, I've launched it. I want you all to go check out chargerforward.com, where you'll have tech reviews, in particular thanks to a great bunch of people over at Archlight Studios, and a whole lot more that's going to be coming up. We'll be talking about it more inside of some of the other housekeeping segments, but go check it out now over at chargerforward.com. The 301 for the Curious Goods Podcast. Ah, season two. Elise, did you like season two? I did. Of course I did. Really? I can't imagine that you would have liked season two. That's amazing. (laughs) It's before they introduced Johnny Ventura fully. (laughs) Yeah. I did not like Johnny Ventura, and yet, ironically enough, some of my favorite episodes are third season. Oh, that's amazing. That, that makes it even more exciting. Yeah, uh, just so that you know, Elise, Mike knows nothing of season three. So he doesn't know how Ryan gets written out of the show, and oh. he knows none of the episodes. So, uh, I mean, just recently he found out that the show has no ending. Yeah, thanks to a certain podcast co-host of mine. I've kept it secret from him for so long so we could actually do the podcast. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Nick, Nick is actually referring to my hatred of television programs that feature no ending. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, uh, I won't say anything, but um, <laughs> it's a great episode. Yeah. Fr- frustrating to be sure that I, the, I guess the cool part is that there's probably some fan fiction that can be written that probably either provides an end or perhaps that goofy little bridge that Nick and I often refer to that will actually make a reboot of the show. <laughs> because of all the places to reboot, I'm talking, this is the place to go for sure. Anyway, our 301 for the Curious Goods podcast can be found right now, again, over at our website at CuriousGoodsPodcast.com. It is the brightest, shiny spots and the tainted wedding gown horrors of season two, as well as our discussion of what's coming up inside of season three that, again, Nick has shared. I know zero about, except that there was a season three and... It features no ending of any kind. Thank you very much. (laughs) And now on to our guest. How special is this? You're connecting from where, Elise? Los Angeles. Los Angeles. And I'm assuming you're out of the way of the fires and all the unhappy folk out there? Yeah, the fires are... Not super far, but far enough that we don't have to worry about evacuating. So it should be good. Okay, well, good. And as we said in the prelude, if for some reason your place is on fire and you need to leave, you don't need to ask permission. I give you permission now (laughs) to leave your home slash burning fire house. Not good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, obviously, we've got you on because you have written a book that... I'm, I'm assuming all of the fans will at least either know about, but frankly, that's why you're on, because I know that there are many books that I don't know about, including your book. Your book, Curious Goods Behind the Scenes of Friday the 13th, the series, is a barn burner, especially for people that are steeped in the knowledge of knowing about the show. But what else might you want to know about the show? Your book is a centerpiece for that. Tell us about it. Well... I've been obsessed with the show since I was about 10 years old. I guess, long story short, when I ended up becoming a writer and I was working in horror journalism a lot, Mm. and so I thought, why not? Why don't I uh, write a book about it? And I did. (laughs) Interesting. And uh, obviously, we can all do numbers, and I don't much care. I'm 50, by the way. Uh, When you Uh say you were 10 years old, was that when it originally aired and you were 10 years old? Or is that sometime later? Tell Um, me more. I believe that when I caught it, it was the tail end of the third season. So it was the tail end of its original run. Okay. And was that the hook for Uh, you then? What happened was... It was a Saturday morning because for some reason, most places were airing it at 11 p.m. on Friday or Saturday night. Yep. And in Los Angeles, it was airing at 11 a.m. on Saturday morning. Oh, L.A.'s got to be different. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. I'm trying to imagine the demographic and ratings for a show like this at 1130 in a city like Los Angeles. How did it go three seasons in L.A.? I don't know. I mean, it was, you know, it was syndicated, so it was sold in Mm. syndication. But basically, I was 10 years old Mm -hmm. and looking for cartoons on a Saturday morning. (laughs) Surprise! And Yeah. And then I came across what ended up being the episode Stick It In Your Ear, which is a third season episode about a hearing aid. Okay. 
I just I turned on the channel and there was just bubbling pustules and dripping goo and I was totally sold. I was so entranced by it. And that was it. I was I was hooked. I was obsessed. It's very similar to to my experience because I found the show on accident by staying up a lot later than I should have as a child. And just before the Three Stooges would come on at like one o'clock in the morning, they would show the anthologies here in St. Louis. You know, you'd have Freddy's Nightmares. You'd have Friday the 13th, the series. Uh, They had Monsters and a couple other uh, uh, Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. reruns would show up, uh, uh, Tales from the Dark Side, things mm-hmm. like that. And as a kid, it's like, I'm not really paying attention to the story. I'm paying attention to the gory stuff. Yeah. And and that's what, that's what uh, hooked me. And then, of course, you know, now as an adult getting to see it again, it's like, wow, this show was more than just the gory stuff. <laughs> yeah. That was one of the things that I was afraid of when working on my book, because obviously I had to go through and watch the show all over again, mm-hmm. Yeah, which wasn't a difficult thing because I had been watching it off and on throughout the years. Mm-hmm. And I was really concerned that as an adult, it would not hold up. Yeah. But really, it's quite good. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. When I, when I saw this, I was just at 18 and I... My generation story is epic, and I always love sharing it. I kind of got dragged into watching this show. Nick knows this outright, as does our audience. I don't much care for horror. It's not where I choose to go for entertainment most of the time. But my dad did know that I did love jumping in the car with him and my bonus mom to go to the antique stores. <laughs> and so I I got dragged in sideways into the show because he said, Hey, man, I know you love going out on trips and stuff to look at antiques. Look at this. I'm like, Oh, hey, cool. What in the hell is that? <laughs> so, anyway, it was uh, it was a fun jaunt, and it's one that I never finished. Uh, I know inside the prelude, Nick shared with you that I've not see- seen season three at all. This is uh, what are you waiting for? Well, I'm, I'm waiting for our audience to join me to be horrified by my horrification of being watching it. So, okay. the uh, the other value too is that I have been watching each of these episodes since what. I think Mesmer's Bobble is where I think I figured out that I hadn't seen anything after Mesmer's Bobble in season two. I think that's when the whole which was out. the tail end of season two. So you saw most of season you saw all of season one and the majority of season two. Okay, so. yeah. Nick and I the the format of our program, Elise, is we we actually watch the episode of the show that we're going to review before we review it, like right beforehand, and then we we write our quick story retell of the episode so that people that either haven't ever seen the series or can't go and get it on any streaming service or don't own the DVD set, well, they can still be somehow engaged because they know the story because they listen to the quick retell we have of it inside of our program. And then the the goods and the bads of each of the episodes and then our uh, excellent ratings, asterisk, and, <laughs> and then the ensuing hilarity that happens between Nick and I because I'm so funny. 
Well, I I think <laughs> there's a balance because Mike, like you said, you're not the horror guy. I am not the horror guy. Yeah. But you like storytelling. You like Absolutely. good storytelling. Yeah. So and, and I'm I, the horror guy though. Yeah. And uh, Nick is <laughs> Nick is the horror guy for and I'm not giving him nearly the credit that he needs. Nick is also the host of Two Guys Talking Horror, which Elisa and I talked about oh. on the phone in our preamble a couple of weeks ago. And the education part of everything that is on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network, well, the centerpiece of all of it is education. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be some kind of light bulb moment, if not multiple light bulb moments in all of our content. And Nick and his entourage of never-ending friends bring the pain when it comes to horror. It's amazing. The, I, I, what I do love, even though I'm not a big horror fan, what I do love is the why of horror and yeah. how and why does it impact us. And they jump into that inside of their episodes over at two guys talking horror.com. I always recommend people go and, and listen to that and listen to them multiple times because there's something, it's very much like reading a book where you read a book and something jumps out at you. But as you read it over and over again, there's something else that jumps out at you. And I think that's mm-hmm. why I really fell in love with podcasting is because it's, Well, I will go and pick up a book if it's on a friend recommendation or somebody tells me you've got to read this book. I I might. (laughs) More often than not, I want to go and listen to an audio book or perhaps watch the movie. Uh, It's also why we came up with another podcast called The Versus Machine. The Versus Machine actually takes the book and the movie and then tells you the differences between the two. And Hmm. that that's also one of my favorite things is to learn more of how the two are different and maybe why. Like. Back in the day, they just didn't have the special effects of something like Lawnmower Man. And so Lawnmower Man had to be made later when there was some kind of ability to have the effects, although those Mm -hmm. were reasonably crapo as well. Well, yeah, but technically speaking, the story, Lawnmower Man and the movie, have nothing in common. Right, right. Like, absolutely nothing in common (laughs) except for the name. Right. Right, right. There, there's an L in each of the titles. That's about it. <laughs> right. And uh, anyway, that, that's that's what I do love, and why I also, in addition to talking about the book and the contents of the book, I also want to make sure that we talk about the compilation of the book, because I know that there are fans out there, whether it's a Friday the Thirteenth series or not, that want to write a book but are horrified by going, "Oh my God, I want to write a book, but how the hell am I going to do that?" I, I, I hope that you can shed a little bit of light on something of that, too, as we go inside the interview. Okay, I hope I can, too. Okay, great. Why don't we, uh, let, let's dig into the specifics about your book. Obviously, I don't want you to give away the farm here, but giving us, again, some of those light bulb moments that people are going to be gleaning inside of your book, Curious Goods, Behind the Scenes of Friday the 13th, the series, what are they going to find, and why do they need to get this book, Elise? It is the book on Friday the 13th, the series. It's the only book that has ever been written about the show. Mm -hmm. And I include, I did almost 70 interviews exclusive for the book with stars, guest stars, directors, producers, writers, pretty much everyone who I could get a hold of. Yeah, even the composer. Yeah, yep. I uh, talked to everyone. <laughs> I was I was busy for a couple of years. Um, Tell us more about when this was. Was this 2014, 15? Because it's a the published date is 16, right? Yeah, I believe that I sold the book the beginning of 2014. 
teen. I don't know. Time has no meaning right now. <laughs> but, uh, I'm trying to remember like how I got started with the writing. I think I just started with episodes, and I just started writing the recaps. Mm. Started sending out emails to people to see if I could get them to talk. Mm-hmm. It was surprisingly easy to get once I found people. I use social media. I think one of the guest actors, I actually found his name on a church registry. And so I emailed oh, wow. the church. Holy stalkerific. And, <laughs> and asked them to put me in contact with him or, or give pass on my information in case he oh. was interested. Oh, that was kind. That was nice. Yeah. It also gave you that little buffer thing of, I am not a stalker. I am just a curious author. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. No, I I love that. And again, the hunt for the people that make the show, uh, again, for for people that have only caught on to our Curious Goods podcast and haven't looked into the rest of the stuff that we've been doing, we've been podcasting for 16 years now. And the front end of my podcasting career was exactly, it sounds very much like your book thing, where... Sure, I, the, my, my claim to fame is uh, the 24podcast.com effort where we review each and every episode of 24. And mm-hmm. I, I could have went and gotten Kiefer and the entire entourage of stars that are in the show, and he would go and jump into a drunken Christmas tree, and we could talk about that in an interview. But I wanted to get the people that make the show because mm-hmm. they will always have the stories and the stories that fans love to not only glom onto, but then share with other people so that they'll get interested in something and want to go experience that or more. That was a giant piece of magnet inside of the story generation of two guys talking in general. But that's also trickled mm-hmm. into everything else that we're doing when we go and we grab people that make the show. The, the sample is that our upcoming interview with John DeLemay is, or John LeMay as we know him via Facebook, is <laughs> is uh, coming up and... He was extraordinarily easy to connect with, not because we had to hunt him down or check a church book registry, but because he contacted us. Wow. And that's when you know you're conjuring something appropriate or, you know, it's it's a piece of the puzzle. When the piece Mm -hmm. of the puzzle falls into your lap and that the people that were on the show are connecting with you to share their appreciation of the work that you're doing, that's an instant gratitude moment that I do not have a price to put on. Mm-hmm. Well, the funny thing about it is, is that we get the email, and I'm just like, oh, okay, well, this is a nice email of of somebody who is, enjoys listening to the show. Yeah. Then I look at the recipient or, or the uh, the sender of the email. And I'm like, but John Lemay, what? No, and I didn't believe it. I was like, no, this is just some guy who either has the similar name or is just screwing with us. Yeah. And sure enough. Yeah. It it was the real deal, was, and I, like I, I I I literally I I turned into a fanboy, yeah. and I squealed. Yeah, as did I, as did I. It reminded me uh, the, the other generation point story that we have. It's very much akin to this. Is uh, after we had uh, two or three seasons of twenty four under our belt via the twenty four podcast dot com effort, we got an email, not unlike this one, from some dude in Mallorca, Spain. And he said, I was just sitting here on the beach enjoying a lovely umbrella drink and listening to your podcast. I really enjoy it. And it, it said, uh, glowing, love that we talked about things that no one else talked about. And then it was signed, production designer Joseph Hodges from 24. And wow. I, I thought it was a couple of my coworkers screwing with me. Because it, 
you know, it's like Mallorca, Spain. Sure, it's Mallorca, Spain. Gotcha. Okay. Oh, and an umbrella drink. How quaint. And so, of course, I responded back with some incredibly snarky, assholish email. And it was. It was him. <laughs> it was it was Joseph Hodges from 24, the production designer in a number of other films. His stuff is just really, really awesome. I sent back a, a, a quick mea culpa email. And then I asked mm-hmm. him to come on the podcast. And one interview with him turned into 13 different interviews with him during the run of the series. And it was just wow. a, a stroke of engine that propelled and has propelled everything inside of two guys talking. So, again, I, I love those generation moments where you can glance with the people that are able to share the stories that everybody wants to hear but are never asked to tell a story because they are infinitely more interesting than – so what was it like working with John Cassara? You know, anybody anybody, and everybody asks that inside of a press junket. But how right. do you – you know, how do you, how can you dig in and get the, the details? And the answer is you almost always have to remove it from the formula interview that you're going to find inside of especially a press junket because here's your here's your 14 minutes and go. And so they've they've all got to capture semi same stuff. And when you're able to ask the people that make the shows the questions that they have to ponder about, the answers are so much more fulfilling. You may not get as many answers, but you're going to get so much more fulfilling answers that then fulfill your audience. And I wish more people mm-hmm. understood that. Yeah. And it seems like your book is filled with that because everybody, most of the interviews that I've read through it, uh, they seem very eager to want to actually just tell the truth and not just gloss over it. Oh, yes, I had a wonderful time working on the set. No, they're talking about, yeah, this person was a pain to deal with sometimes, but we, we did it and there's chemistry and things like that. I think... I think that's the thing I appreciate the most about the book. It's not just, all right, so here's episode one, and this is what happened. Moving on to episode two. You've got so much. It's like it's like the extra bonus DVD content. Yes. <laughs> you are the special features that do not appear on the DVD box set of Friday the 13th. Yeah. The series. <laughs> yeah. And w- w- while we're, we're accidentally mentioning that, I would urge you to make sure that if you get a, a little waft of that happening, to be the source of the connective tissue for that thing. Because there are other projects that have done exactly what Nick is talking about, where the people and the fans, they actually do provide the commentary uh, for uh, the official DVD sets. Or at least back then it was DVD sets. Now to be the Blu-ray sets where you can tuck even more stuff onto it. So mm-hmm. I always tell authors, especially people that have taken the time and effort as you have with your book to always keep your ear to the ground on things like that. Because again, you are the source. Show me the other, yeah. the other book about Friday the 13th, the series real quick. And the answer is, uh, we don't got one. Exactly. Right. So we've talked a little bit about your book and the contents. What I now want to know, because I have said this time immemorial, mostly to myself, that whatever has happened to me, man, this is going to be great in my memoir. Uh, the the how of writing a book. I want to dig in. Uh, obviously, you've got to have some passion, and it shows clearly inside of not only this interview, but your book. Besides passion, what else needs to happen to go from I got only a great idea and some passion to put it on a page and into a book? I was incredibly lucky. I think when I wrote this book, a friend of mine recommended a couple of places for me to pitch mm-hmm. the book. Yep. 
and one of them was Bear Manor Media. Okay. I wrote a rather casual email and was just like I laid out what my book was, what I wanted it to be, and uh, sent it off. And a few hours later, he wrote me back and said, guess what? You just sold your first book. Wow. Nice. It was really uncharacteristically easy, and I don't think almost anybody would have the same experience because, you know, now a few years in, a few books in, I'm trying to get some other ones sold and having Mm -hmm. not more difficulty, but it's just much more time consuming. Mm, Sure, sure. The whole concept of stars aligning, especially for something like writing a book, I think I've spoken to more people than I can imagine where there is that accidental, the stars were aligning, I got lucky moment. Uh, one of the other authors that I've talked to in the past is Tara DeLulo. Do you know Tara DeLulo? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Tara and I have talked, I think, three or four times about the 24 books that she wrote. And uh-huh. what, what I love about hers are... As as passionate as you and I are, she's with a shovel in talking to people. <laughs> uh, the the, uh, the power behind the zeal to go and get the answers and information from people. When I talked to her in the interviews now over a decade ago, incredibly powerful. And uh, how, how, do you know, have you worked with Tara? Do you know Tara? Yeah, actually, she was the one who helped me get my second book. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> uh, again, the, the format and the, the makeup of all of the 24 books that she has either done herself or had either a hand in or a large giant shovel beating people over the head to get information from. I love those books because they are uh, compendiums. They, they, they match exactly what we're talking about inside of our Curious Goods 301 episode where I mentioned the, the Marvel Universe encyclopedias, which mm-hmm. back in the day were these delicious, thick, white covered comic books and the white covers were covered with incredible drawings of each of the heroes. And then each of the volumes, I think there were maybe, depending on how many characters were in it, there were probably 30 characters in each and then a compendium of four or five total. And it's exactly the same thing where it goes into the generation story, the history, the background of the character, the character's superpower abilities. Tara's book does a lot of that also with the characters, but then also the people that make the shows. And so it instantly becomes instant must-have for someone like Mike Wilkerson. Yeah. And me, I'm just a sucker for anything that gives me more knowledge into all of my horror obsessions. (laughs) So I literally have an entire section that is just reference materials for some of the most obscurest things that... It's the whole reason why we did this podcast for, you know, (laughs) Curious Goods podcast. I'm like, nobody is doing a Friday the 13th, the series podcast. And we looked and it was Uh like, nope, nobody's doing it. So let's do it. (laughs) And then we find this this rich fan base that I thought I loved this show. There are people out there that can tell you the exact episode that Ryan starts wearing an earring. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, well, I... I didn't even notice stuff like that. I wasn't paying attention to stuff like that. But you've got people that love the show so much and watch it so much that they can see the little differences throughout the show. And that's one of the reasons why I absolutely love your book. Now, of course, I haven't gone past season two, 
because <laughs> even though I've seen most of the episodes in season three, I don't want anything to be spoiled just in case I run across right. an episode I haven't seen. Yeah, bless you, my son. You're you're welcome. I, I want it to be as as engaging as possible <laughs> so that I can be just as amazed as you, Mike, when we when we <laughs> stumble upon an episode I don't remember. <laughs> And it's going to be amazing. Make sure you, all of you are tuning into our podcast. Again, that's over at CuriousGoodsPodcast.com. Season 3 is on its way. And man, the power and information we've got from Elise Wax's book, Curious Goods, Behind the Scenes of Friday the 13th, the series. An instant element to propel all of our fandom wants. We'll have a link to it inside the show notes inside this episode. Again, over at CuriousGoodsPodcast.com. What are you waiting for? B -b -b buy the book. Do it. Do it now. We've glanced a little bit about you, but let's talk about your career. Where where did Elise Wax start as a writer? Did it did it start super early? Like you found this show super early? I was born. Well, I started writing. <laughs> <laughs> My mom is a journalist, and mm. so obviously. You know, my form of rebellion was, no, I don't want to be a writer. <laughs> um, and then, actually, I first started writing My Other Passion is The X-Files. Hmm. And that was the show that made me want to become a writer. Hmm. And at first, I wanted to be a TV writer. Mm -hmm. And then, after college, I just kind of fell into journalism and it turned out I was really good at it. <laughs> and then I realized that there was this whole subsection of horror journalism. Mm. And I was a very big horror fan. Mm -hmm. And one thing led to another. And I ended up working at Fearnet.com, nice. which is now long gone, sadly. Yeah. But it was an amazing, amazing place to work with amazing people that just kind of launched me. And so ever since then, I've been writing for Fangoria, Shock Till You Drop, Bloody Disgusting. I was briefly the editor-in-chief of Dread Central. Um, nice. I write for Sci-Fi Wire, Coming Soon, Collider, Crave, just all over the place. Basically, I'm a whore. Any place that'll pay me, I'll write for. Sure. There you go. Sure. Uh, that is awesome. I guess one question I know that I have, especially as someone as a prolific writer as you have become, when did the transfer take over from I'm using a pen and paper to now full-blown keyboard mode? What, what age did that happen for you? I got my first computer when I was six years old. Okay. So pretty early. Wow. All right. Yeah, I think that was when we had our first computer. So in school, I would, you know, write with pen and paper, mm -hmm. even up through college. Right. But everything, I was on the internet early, mm -hmm. probably earlier than I should have been. I was 13 <laughs> and I had a computer in my room mm. and was logging on to AOL and discovering that there were a few Friday the 13th, the series fans out there. And I dug them out from all the dark crevices of the internet. <laughs> I did put together a Friday the 13th fanzine when I was about 16 or so. 
Oh, well, at least you could start it when you're 16. I figured you'd be running some giant corporation that would push Friday the 13th, the series, at 17, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not, yeah. I'm more of a, I guess, creative type than a oh, yeah. business Type, no. so. As I think are many of the people that are listening, there's going to be the. I'm certain that there is the closeted uh, CEO that is also a Friday the Thirteenth fan, but this is definitely yeah. for the folks that we're catering to. There's no question. Oh yeah, we're a different type of breed. <laughs> well, that's tremendous. What? Uh, what? When did you start seeing the swath of social media bleed, haha, into what you do as a as a professional journalist? I was never. Really, when I was when I was a hardcore, like the only time that I've really had a full time desk job in journalism was with Fearnet, mm-hmm. and I did not take advantage of social media back then, mm-hmm. which would have been like 2013 ish. Okay. So honestly, I didn't really start getting into social media until a few years ago. Mm, okay. The only one I'm really active on is Twitter, sure. and that's just Elise Wax. Yeah, social media has literally changed the face of journalism, and I think in many circles, not for the better. Precluding what's happened, everything that's happened inside of 2020, there's a definitely specific avenue that social media creates for all kinds of journalism. Uh, the question is, what has the concept and moniker of journalism become in, say, the last decade? And it's become something solely different than it was, especially in the time when you were starting inside of journalism circles. Yeah, it's gotten a little wild, wild west out there. Mm, yeah. I think part of the problem is that because I know that when I was a kid and Maybe it was partially because my mom was a journalist, but also I think in school we were taught, you know, we did like current events and stuff. And I think that there is a lack of media preparation. You know, I feel like they used to teach us how to read the media. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember in current events, you know, you would clip articles and and the teacher would explain what you would learn from an article and kind of how to recognize what media was reputable. Mm. I think that with the combination of blogs and everyone being able to say that they're an expert, it's just we've lost a lot of that cachet. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. I can remember the first time that I wrote for ScreenRant.com and the call to go to the Comic-Cons. Each of the years going to Comic-Con, you know, as Comic-Con began to grow and begin to get crazy, just like where it's its own city for an entire week, r- right before then is where I had started to question how and whom was getting credentials for what they were yeah. doing and why they were in positions that they were in. And that wasn't a piece of elitism that was going on. That was that question of credibility, i.e. I don't discount your 700 articles that you've written over three years that are each 650 words long, uh, but I have a question for you. And and yeah. th- those kind of things are they're mostly lost because of attention spans, where as much as you want to go and vet, 
If some dude has 300 articles and you can read for days of what he's written, even if they're shorter, and they've got pictures and references and links off to places, how do you tell that dude that you are not credible enough to have this badge on your chest to go and talk to the comic book folk? Yeah. And so, the, again, that question of journalism, I think, right, right in that... That goofy 2003, 4, 5 is when it all started to morph. That, that's, when I, that's when I started to recognize it anyway. And you're absolutely right about the Wild Wild West. I think that the concept of gunslinger right now is an excellent, excellent analogy for what we can look at professional journalism at, both in the good and bad vein. Just like there were people out there that were providing a semblance of justice inside of journalism there's also the ability of the kids out there that are gunning people for snoring. So it's, it's an amazing time to be alive and to have any interest in journalism at all. But it's one that is where you must be cautious, uh, know yeah. what you're doing and have a good solid piece of integrity that's installed because if you don't, you will quickly get lost. Yeah. What a phenomenal front end of this interview. It's time to take a break here during the Curious Goods podcast, our interview with Elise Wax, author of Curious Goods, Behind the Scenes of Friday the 13th, the series. We'll be right back. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time. To make your podcast soar, editorcore.com. That's editorcore.com. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can. With perpetual advertising, here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even if your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment, real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From the Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Everyone, welcome back to the Curious Kids Podcast, a retelling, a revisit, and an always educational detailing of each and every episode of Friday the 13th, the series. 
Tonight, we're talking to Elise Wax, the author of Curious Goods, behind the scenes of Friday the 13th, the series. Welcome back, Elise. Before we went to break, we had started talking about journalism and very serious things. And now it's time to talk about the other things that fuel us. Horror, pop culture, and podcasting. I'm going to start with horror because I think in the room here, I'm probably the the, the redheaded stepchild of... I'm not entirely sure why I'm reviewing something that's horror-based. You're but definitely the odd man out. I'm definitely the odd man out. What I would always focus on, though, is a lot of what Nick was talking about. Nick knows that I love a great story. More importantly, mm-hmm. I love it when a property is able to build great characters to then tell the great stories. And I think that's what I've appreciated most about this podcast is that in addition to getting educated by Mr. Nick here, as I usually do, <laughs> uh, I also get to go back and revisit this incredible piece of nostalgia with this program. Again, my dad and I started watching this this program based on my interest in getting into the car and going to antique stores and my dad's love of horror, all things horror. I, I think what, what that holds for me is, especially this third season, it's a sense of completion. It's, it's, a, it's a page not written. And I cannot wait to write the page that just happens to feature horror and cursed goods and promises to the devil. And it's all thanks to Friday the 13th, the series. Horror is not all bad, Mike. I agree. Good. <laughs> I'm glad you do. Except for Wedding in Black. Oh, Oh, Wedding in Black. I I think this is a good time to call not only to the audience, but to our guest. Elise, what did you think of Wedding in Black? You know, I actually liked Wedding in Black. Okay. All right. Now, Um, see, here's the the thing about it. A lot of people said they loved that episode before we uh, we reviewed it. You're going to love this episode. You won't believe what happens inside this episode. So our expectations were high. Super high. Uh-huh. And then we watched it, and there are a lot of things wrong in that episode, storytelling element wise. So when yeah. we put the inter- when we put the review out, we asked people, it's like, please come and tell us why this episode is so beloved because we're not seeing it. And nobody, and we we actually have a pretty rabid fan base that will jump in and, and make comments if we get something wrong. And defend, oh, yes. without question. But yeah. nobody defended this episode. The only, yeah. the only response we ever got was, well, you're not wrong about your points that you made in the episode. I think that what I liked best about it was that we learned about the characters' backgrounds more mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of this episode. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, I think also when I was a kid, I liked the Magic Castle. It was kind of, it was beautiful. Oh, yeah. And kind of charming and, I guess, a little bit fairy tale-ish I agree. to me. Everything that you um, just said, I agree with completely. Yeah. But also, I realized looking back or when I watched it again as an adult, a lot of the finer points I missed when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And that kind of left me questioning the whole idea of Nikki, would she losing, would she lose her soul? And and all of this idea of consenting to one form of evil is the same as consenting to all of them. And 
So those those points of it I didn't like. I glean a lot from what you said, mostly because it's what is completely missing from the, you're going to love this episode. Wait a minute, you didn't like it. But I agree with all of your points of why you don't like it. The way that you are sharing your information here, I think, is terribly appropriate. Because mm-hmm. the I, I don't think that we were, quote, nitpicking right. inside that episode much. So much so that I remember us... I can't remember when we were talking about it after we'd recorded that show, but I go, the only thing that was missing from that show with Jack and who, who was in the car with Jack? It was Ryan. Jack Ryan. and Ryan. Jack and Ryan are in the car. Mm-hmm. The only thing that was missing to make it incredibly satisfying was Toonses the Driving Cat. <laughs> <laughs> and then I might have eked it up the bar a little bit, but the rest of it was just insanity. I... I, I didn't understand it at all. I do agree absolutely on the location stuffs. And again, for those that have listened to our podcast at all, we love it when they're able to go in secure locations like that place because, my God. Oh, yeah. I mean, it just you, yeah. it, it eats the screen. You could probably just show that and have none of the goony wedding crap all in the episode. And everybody would, everybody would just go, oh, I love that episode. You're going to love this episode <laughs> yeah. when you see it. And I do. I do love it when I see it. But the story is not there. I feel it had more to do with nostalgia for people because just, just like Elise said, it's, it's you know, when I was a kid and I watched it, I just I was enchanted mm. by what I saw. But mm. then as an adult, you watch it and go, oh, well, there's a lot more going on in this episode and maybe it's not all that great. It's still good, but maybe it's not yeah. all that great. I feel like most of the audience was in that boat. It was like, I remember that episode and I loved it. And then we review it. And the reason why we didn't hear anything is like, oh, well, so that <laughs> happened, and I, I, I can't argue with that. Right. Yeah, uh, I think that episode yeah. had way too much going for it. They, they put way too much in the episode. Yeah. And I think had we just stuck with one storyline, with one character, with the other characters helping out, I think it would have made a little bit more sense, and we could have focused more on the temptation aspect and what Mickey was going through. But we had ryan's storyline going and we had jack's storyline going mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. had everything else going with the devil who yeah. sounded mm-hmm. like dr claw from yep. the inspector gadget cartoon yeah <laughs> yeah uh but but okay so we we actually have an expert on the show that says it's okay it's not the best i'm paraphrasing no. your words of course it's definitely not the best you know it, it's it's good and it's enjoyable and it's pretty to look at, but it's definitely flawed. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's only one way to make it unflawed, and it's to have Jack lean over to Ryan and go, How does he reach the pedals? As Toons is the driving cat finishes out the episode. <laughs> <laughs> the bottom line is uh, we got a little bit off track off on our way to the snow globe, perhaps inside of that little point, but I had to. I had to ask. I had to. Yeah, you you did. You I did. have an expert on the phone. <laughs> I have to ask. <laughs> oh my! At least we've talked about a bunch of things here, mostly your book, but also Friday the Thirteenth, the series. Tell us more about your love of just pop culture in general, because we know it extends way more beyond Friday the Thirteenth, the series. Yeah, I guess it's just uh, you know I was. Raised in Los Angeles, so Hollywood and and all of that is just kind of everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I watch a lot of television. I watch, I like to say that I watch an average of 47 hours of television a day. Yeah. (laughs) um, Because I'm just that, I'm just that good at it. 
all I do. I mean, I went to film school and I don't know. It's just always been part of my life, you know, like I can't imagine. To me, it's so weird to meet people who work in real estate and don't keep their television on 24 hours a day. I'm not right. talking to you guys, but I've got the Simpsons on on mute on my television right now. Hmm. So, Well, now it's September. Are you, are you binging the Treehouse of Horror episodes yet? Oh, I always binge those. All right. <laughs> it, is, it is always Treehouse of Horror time in my house. Amen. Just in case all of you are horrified by me being in the actual conversation, I do know what the Treehouse of Horror is. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, you, you're saying that you watch a lot of television? What? Um, well, let's jump to a couple of different points. What's your favorite television show of all time? Probably tied between Friday the Thirteenth the series and the X Files. Okay, and tell us about your love of the X Files. That, by the way, also includes another book. Yes. The X-Files, I've been obsessed with since the day it first aired mm-hmm. in 1993. Yep. I kind of fell out of my obsession sometime around season five or so. Yep, yeah. that, that sounds um, very yeah. familiar. But but then the second revival season brought me right back to it and stronger than ever. Mm. So I got my own little cult of X-Files fans and... Uh, <laughs> I'm big on X-Files Twitter, and I wrote, actually, for another book that I'm working on called Creepy Bitches, Mm -hmm. which is women in horror write essays about horror, and uh, I wrote an essay about Scully, and basically it's it's the Scully effect and her, her effect on feminism and her portrayal on the X-Files mm-hmm. and how important she is as a female character mm. and also defending, I guess, a little bit, both defending and disputing series creator Chris Carter mm. for okay. what many fans find him to be faulting or lacking in his portrayal of Scully. Sure, sure. So I guess it's kind of, I don't want to say a feminist creed, it's a gendered look. I'll Mm. say that because one of the things that I think is very unfair is that people overlook Mulder's suffering as well. Yeah. And they say... Oh, everything was about making Scully be traumatized, and well, that's not really true. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with that. I, I one of the other pieces I wanted to share too, inside of our first conversation preamble we had a couple of weeks ago, was a little magic elixir for the last season of X Files. The what what are those? What are the what are the revisits called exactly, Elise? The revival season. And is that what it is? So the most recent season was one of the two revival seasons? Is that how it's referred to? I mean, it depends on who you talk to. Mm -hmm. Amongst the hardcore fan base, we just call them seasons 10 and 11. Okay. Right, right. Elisa shared something with me about season 11 that I'm absolutely going to take to heart and revisit it because I was incredibly disappointed with what I saw initially out of the first three episodes of the most recent revival season, season 11. 
And what did you share with me again, Elise? Do you remember? Don't watch the My Struggle episodes, the season premieres and finales of each season are just terrible. And I just want to make sure that all of you understand that the lady that loves X-Files from day one and the, the, the essay is uh, a testament to understanding how best the storytelling should be taken in. And so when someone like you says, watch those seasons without the My Struggle pieces, well, I'm going to do it because I would be crazy to not do it because I am looking and was desperately hunting for quality and, and the, the giant nostalgia bomb that I did not get at all from any of that. I have spoken to so many people who told me that they watched season 10. They were so excited. They were big fans when the show was on. They watched season 10 and they were so disappointed by it. And then some <laughs> yes. of them tuned in to the first episode of season 11 and were horrified yeah. and stopped watching. One of my good friends, she's a diehard exile, and she didn't. The My Struggle Three, which would have been the season eleven premiere, mm-hmm. she watched that and was so horrified that she stopped watching, and she didn't end up watching it until another friend of hers begged her, insisted that she watch the rest of the season. Mm. And she did remove from My Struggle episodes. If you take the My Struggle 3 and 4 out of season 11, it is one of their strongest seasons. Wow. Well, I'm definitely going to take that recipe because, I, I again, I, I'm, on, I'm in the search as much as Scully and Mulder were in the initial search for whatever the hell they were looking for for anything from those most recent seasons of, of the X-Files, because I'm with you. I, that the, those very first seasons where we're not only great storytelling and superbly done cliffhangers, but they were that legacy storytelling that instantly engages you because you must know what happens next. Yeah. And I miss that. I'm, I miss that. And uh, there's been a revival of that inside of, especially uh, streaming and in, in most cases I, I watch other streaming services, but Netflix is the one that's done it the most where you finish one episode and you cannot possibly not watch the next one. And, and yeah. so they've, they, they've definitely got that. They've got that magic elixir formula put back into it to have you watch the next one as well as making it where you don't have to get up and go put another DVD in the, in the player. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it, it's something that always, always, I think we're looking for. Nick, what is your favorite television program of all time? My favorite television program of yes. all time? Mm-hmm. Farscape. Mm. All right. But my favorite television program of all time that has a connection to the horror genre mm-hmm. is uh, a tie. One is, uh, this is actually kind of ironic, one is uh, a, a loose inspiration for the X-Files, which is Kolchak the Night Stalker. Right. Yeah. And the other is the spinoff from the X-Files, Millennium. Yeah, Millennium. I love Millennium because, oh yeah, because I love Lance Hendrickson and I love Terry O'Quinn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Terry O'Quinn, dude. Yeah. When does he get put back into something? Is he alive? Yeah, he's still alive. alive. Yeah, Yeah. he's still still kicking. I'm waiting for Stepfather, the next generation. (laughs) Stepfather, the next generation. Because that's the the first time I remember seeing Terry O'Quinn is in that film, The Stepfather. Mm. And 
that terrified me because my mother was single mm-hmm. and and that was the guy that was going to become well guy. i was afraid that anybody she was going to bring into the house it's going to be some <laughs> some raging lunatic uh, you laugh oh. it's why i call my my stepmother my bonus mom because of all the horrifying visual nature of the word stepmother <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome I think my my favorite television program of all time, and Nick won't be surprised by this at all, is The Shield. Without question, Michael Chiklis' vehicle that gives us seven delicious seasons of the guy you love to hate and should because he is a bad cop, Vic Mackey. Wow, I thought you were going to say one of the Star Trek properties. If I had to go Star Trek property, I would go Deep Space Nine, (laughs) without question. Again, because of the storytelling, the character generation, the story arcs that they were able to feature inside that program, and then also the drift into that program from other from other properties, I thought that was some genius level story writing inside of that. That was that was tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Mike, you don't have to answer this question. Oh, good, thanks. But Elise, one of the things over at Two Guys Talking Horror that I love to ask people is, what was the horror film that you saw that got you hooked on the genre? It was uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, I believe it was. Part 5, I, The Dream Master. I, yes. <laughs> uh, no, The Dream Child. Dream Child, that's right. Part 4 was Dream Master. Then there was a child. Then Dream then he got pregnant. Then they had a kid. Oh, good. Right, yes. Yeah. Good. Now that I'm all um, up to speed, awesome. <laughs> I uh, was at a friend's house. Uh, again, I was about 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And we sneaked in and watched, I guess, her older sister was watching it or something. <laughs> and she was like, let's let's watch it. Let's watch it. And my parents were fairly strict with what I watched. Well, thank God I they let you watch it, Friday was, the 13th, the series. <laughs> well, it, it was... It was Saturday morning, man. <laughs> yeah. Bugs because, Bunny, evil, evil antiques, same thing. Well, my parents had this idea of if it's on TV, it's okay because the Ah. FCC has trimmed it down and made it safe. Sure. But anyway, so we watched it. Now, I was afraid that I was going to be afraid, but (laughs) I watched it and I was like, this Freddy guy is hilarious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, by that time, (laughs) by that time in the franchise, yeah. yeah. He was just, and that was it. It was all over. I was super into horror movies and wow that's amazing i love that yeah my yeah. my mother used to be afraid of horror movies and then you know she gets pregnant with me and she told herself it's like i can't be afraid of these things if i'm going to raise a child and tell them that you know there's nothing to be afraid of so she started mm-hmm. watching more horror movies and then at a very early age and in her mind it was to I guess desensitize me to say there's no such thing as monsters and and this stuff isn't real. I I start mm-hmm. I, I was allowed to watch horror movies at a very young age. My first one was An American Werewolf in London. Oh, oh, nice. Oh yeah, yeah. So you, but we're talking about you know I'm like five uh-huh. or six, oh maybe almost six, and wow. I, I I as I look back now in self therapy sessions with myself <laughs> i realized that maybe my upbringing was a little bit too loosey-goosey because i was watching things i probably shouldn't have been watching at that early age but yeah. it, in, it influenced me to the point to where now i look at horror as it's it is a necessary entertainment mm-hmm. because 
the world is is filled with real horrors and we have to deal with those on a daily basis so why not go to a safe place over here watch a horror movie watch a horror tv show read a horror book mm -hmm. To where you can be scared of different things instead of scared of, oh, contracting coronavirus or, yeah. oh, being wiped out by a raging fire, oh, terrorism, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. I don't need to worry about that constantly. It's always in the back of my mind. But then hor horror gives us that safe environment to be scared but also be safe. And I think that's one of the things that gets overlooked well, it got overlooked back then, and it still gets overlooked now. Still now. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. People still turn their nose up at horror because, oh, mm -hmm. you watch that? Mm -hmm. but, yeah, I watch that. Right. What's wrong with that? Oh, well, you know, it's just, you know, horror. Yeah. Uh, horror has long been overlooked as a serious genre, which is, frankly, ridiculous mm -hmm. and a little bit very annoying when they talk about all of these high-class horrors and, and <laughs> prestige yeah. horrors. and Intellectual uh, like, you know, horror. Yeah. We've had these for a long time, folks. You just haven't been paying attention. Right. Yeah. And again, that's another reason why I would urge everybody to go check out Nick's podcast over at twoguystalkinghorror.com. It is the whys of the things that they talk about, and you will instantly get more light bulb moments about specifically horror over in that vein. Again, it's two guys talking horror.com. Which I'm throwing out the official invite to Elise to please, please, <laughs> if you'd like, come on over to Two Guys Talking Horror and share even more with our audience over there. I would love to. Woohoo! <laughs> that's an incredibly apt segue because now we're gonna talk about podcasting. Again, I've been podcasting now for 16 solid years. It all started with a little program called the Lunchtime Gab that had a segment about 24 in it. The 24 segment grew to overpower the rest of the nonsense that my coworker and I were talking about. And the rest is now podcast history. Elise, have you got a podcast that you've latched onto someplace on the intertubes? Not really. I've listened to a few and... I find that I get frustrated and I want to start talking to the people <laughs> yeah. who, are, who are doing the podcast. <laughs> and then I just end up sounding crazy. So um, I don't really listen to many podcasts. Okay. Well. And let me guess. The reason why you start talking to the people who can't hear you is because they're wrong and you know the right <laughs> answer and you're telling them how stupid they are. Yeah, more or less. Okay. Okay. Oh my it's God. okay because I do the same thing. She's listening to our podcast yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, now I've, I think I've figured out your podcast path, Elise. You can do the review of our review <laughs> of Friday the 13th, the series, and write another book. <laughs> wow. I, I think that that would be tremendous and sell a billion books. That's great. Oh, Unsubscribe. <laughs> I, I think that that is the first question that everyone asks me is, so you're a podcaster. What's your favorite podcast? To listen to. And I don't have one. I don't have one either. And I'm a podcaster. And it's because I can't tell you one that I listen to all the time that I like all the time. Mm. There's a smattering and peppering based on subject matter. 
And that's why when, when somebody says, you know, have you listened to my 1,237th podcast? Uh, no, I, I haven't. Well, who was on? Oh, you're going to get me with subject matter, not numbers. Well, first yeah. of all, I would have to go back and listen to episode one through <laughs> 131 before I listen to 132 anyway, because yeah. I might be missing important plot points. <laughs> Where the podcast is concerned. <laughs> okay, so that writes Nick off of any any pre existing podcast that doesn't actually give you episode one. So I've totally only I've that. only done that once yeah. where a show was like in the low one hundreds and I'm mm-hmm. like, you know what? I I'll I'll go all the way back to the very beginning. Only did that once. Mm-hmm. And it was engaging enough to where I've stuck with that podcast. Oh, and it does happen too. It does. I, I think I think that's what I find most fascinating about about podcasting is while I think all of us can listen to something for, I don't know, a couple of minutes and then go, this is worth my time or this isn't worth my time. Yeah. That is what I love about podcasting. It's the, it's the ability to not have to buy a book or <laughs> go buy a magazine and get a snapshot. And if it doesn't appeal to you, no problem. Just go find another one. I, I, I think yeah. Nick's, Nick's always brilliant nature provides us with the sample again of other podcasts about Friday the 13th, the series. There are other podcasts about Friday the 13th, the series. I just don't think that you get any light bulb moments from them at all. And if you've already seen the show and somebody runs through a reasonably dry paragraph from the intertube someplace about what happened, and then they don't talk about what happened in the episode, why would you listen to that podcast exactly? Because you're, that's the whole thing. You're in a thirst for knowledge. Yeah. And so you have to provide knowledge inside of your podcast, no matter what it's about. If it's about news, it needs to be more than just what is happening in the news. It has to be, and your perspective on it is what exactly. And that's why someone would bother to listen. That, that's why uh, podcasting appeals to me, to me so much is because I've always known that everyone's personal chemistry set is totally unique. It's just a matter of it being captured and then shared with other people. My goodness, what an outstanding interview with Elise Wax, author of Curious Goods, Behind the Scenes of Friday the 13th, the series. That's the one book you've got. We also know you've got another book that focuses on the world of technology. It's called The the World of IT. Is it not, Elise? (laughs) No, it is not. (laughs) It's the world of it, and it is a making of look at the Andy Muschietti's It and It Chapter 2 movies based on Stephen King's book. Oh, wow. Okay. That's tremendous. And Nick, you guys have dug into some it stuff on your channel, have you not? I have actually done a uh, cut the crap movie review for both uh, It and It Chapter 2, yes. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we'll have links to all of that inside the show notes. And then uh, I also want to make sure that people understand the concept and what's going on with Creepy Bitches. Tell me more about that, Elise. Creepy Bitches is a collection of essays written by women in horror about the horror industry. So some of them (laughs) might be essays that are about females, places, and horror, and some of them are just about horror. It's co-edited with uh, Dr. Rebecca McKendry. She is best known for Shockwaves, and she used to work for Fangoria. Yeah. She's awesome. (laughs) Well, that does sound awesome. And again, that perspective... Uh, that's why stuff like that is and could be potential gold inside of a podcast focus because anytime we can niche down into stuff like that it's solid gold and then adding on 
that the podcasters would be female. Uh, mm -hmm. Solid gold. So, again, keep us surprised of what's going on with that project for sure. But all of these projects, we love your zeal. We love your creative spirit because I know Nick and I specifically as content creators, we appreciate you and know the struggle of coming up with not only engaging content, but something that satisfies yourself. <laughs> it's a never ending climbing bar that it, it, it's, it's such a hard, hard thing to do. And that when you can do it, it's so incredibly satisfying. Yeah. Now, before we end our awesome interview conversation here i have one final question mm -hmm. and it is a part of the whole creative process something that we've talked about on our podcast a lot is the possibility of a reboot reimagining restart of this show because anthology-esque shows are very popular right now mm -hmm. my question to you would you rather see a show that takes place in the already pre-existing world and continues the story? Or would you like to see a new show that has elements from the original, but is more updated and may go in different directions? Well, I think that you would have to have an updated show because you can't, do a show now and set it back in 1989 where right. there's no cell phones or anything like that. Yeah. You would have to change the format a little bit. And obviously, you know, Chris Wiggins died a couple years ago. Sadly, and, yes. um, you know, I don't know if you could get Louise Roby and John LeMay back to play their roles, but I think that it would be nice to see them back kind of as uh, maybe mentorship roles and mm -hmm. the focus being on their new Curious Goods employees, whether it be just kids that they know or maybe their own children or something like that. But I think that would be a fun way into it. So I don't know how that answers your question. <laughs> I guess it's a little bit of both. It is a little bit of both, but that's okay. It's a mixture of both. Yeah. When I, yeah. I, what I've always said, too, is if and or when that happens, if the show is ever revisited or rebooted or somehow regenerated, there is going to be a chemistry shop that's going to be and include many of the things that both you and Nick and I and everybody else that's envisioned it have talked about and will be included. I, I think that the fun part about stepping around the, the technology thing is that, you know, we are talking about curses of the devil. And so... Yeah. If technology doesn't work because Curse of Devil, well, then we have our one number one written rule inside of the show that easy tech fixes can't happen because the devil. There yeah. you go. And there it's done. Yep. And, and now nobody can bitch and whine and nick pick later on inside the story about technology. Hey, when it comes to storytelling, <laughs> there has to be a reason. You give me a reason. Oh, I and I mean, it could be a stupid reason, but at least you give me a reason. <laughs> And then yeah. I'll, I'll complain about how stupid your reason is. <laughs> but if you have no reason whatsoever, it is just it just happens. Eh, I'm sorry. That's kind of that's yeah. kind of a cop out. Yeah, because it's not important right now or reasons are not reason enough to be right. satisfied with something. Right. I.e. Black Wedding. Ugh. Just stop. <laughs> just stop. OK. We've reached the edge of the snow globe. <laughs> 
Tootsis the driving cat. Well, I have to tell you, Elise, I have absolutely loved having you on the show, and I cannot wait until we can uh, have you back on again, either here or over at Two Guys Talking Horror, to talk more about the things that go bump in the night. (laughs) Well, I would love that. Thank you guys so much for having me. Oh, and thanks for coming on. Where can people find your writings currently? Currently, you can find me on um, Coming Soon and sci-fi wire and a little bit on collider and a little bit on bloody disgusting and uh you can follow me on twitter at elise wax and i usually post my stuff there well that's tremendous i'll make sure we have all of those links inside the show notes and again our thank you for jumping into the curious goods podcast this evening thank you so much thanks for listening to this episode of the curious goods podcast We are always interested in learning what you remember about these enchanted items and their tales of reacquisition. Connect with us immediately at CuriousGoodsPodcast.com to share your treasured information. Until the next artifact reveals itself, the vault is now closed. During the break, this is where if you need a break, you may take a break. Oh, and if your house is on fire, you may leave. (laughs) (laughs) I'm okay. Okay, good, good. What we also do during the breaks is we capture what we call IDs. It sounds like you actually know what these are, but just to share, it's where you're going to go, hi, I'm Elise Wax, author of Curious Goods, Friday the 13th, behind the the series, behind the scenes, behind the scenes of Friday the 13th, the series. And you're listening to the Curious Goods podcast. If uh, if you'd like, uh, I would love to get an ID from you for the Two Guys Talking Horror podcast. Oh, yeah. If you'd like to uh, also pimp your other book, The World sure. of It. Wait a minute, isn't it that isn't that the great book about technology no, in the no, modern age? No, not oh. IT. It's it, Mike. It's <laughs> about I, it's about I, a. Ju- I, yes, you did, told me the story. Oh, I told you the story, but did I tell you the story that I shared that with her? Oh, you shared it? Yes, oh, see. Yeah, oh, wow. That, that's I one for Elise's next book. <laughs> Talking to idiots on the internet. Awesome. Idiots who have interviewed me <laughs> by Elise Wax. <laughs>